singing. Why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we, uh, it's great to be able to worship you and to focus our minds and soften our hearts before you through these songs. And I pray, God, that as we've done so now, that in the midst of our very hectic and busy world, and even in the midst of the concerns that so many of us might have here today, that we'd be able to laser beam focus now upon your word. I pray, God, that as we open your book and look at a story that is going to seem so simple to us, but one that also is so profound, that, Lord, you might speak to us that you might hammer home to us truths that we need to know for our lives. And Lord, even for some of us, teach us something we didn't know before we came here today. Lord, the Bible says that it's good for the people of God to gather and to worship you and to be taught your word. And so meet us in this place and in this time now we pray in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. So there's not one person here today, not one person at Cactus, Northridge, Chapel, or joining us online who doesn't like to be provided for every now and then. And I don't care how independent or self-sufficient you might be, and I don't care how much you think that you can provide for all your own needs, what life teaches us is that there are times even for the most rugged of us that we need to be, that we like to be provided for every now and then. Uh, My dad is 87 years old this year, and I'm not overstating it when I say that he is probably one of the most self-sufficient, independent people that I've ever met, and I've met a lot of people. And my dad's background gives him away. He was born in 1934 in the midst of the Great Depression. His dad died in 1941 during World War II. He left my grandmother and my, my dad penniless. They had to sell the only car they owned in California to get two train tickets to get to Peoria, Illinois to, to be with family. In Peoria, they didn't have a lot of money. Graham became a teacher during World War II and and struggled for all of their livelihood. And my dad got a scholarship to Wabash College and then a scholarship to Harvard Law and eventually became a very successful attorney in the Cleveland area where I'm from. But he hammered home to his two boys, my brother Pete and I, that you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need to make something of your own life. I'm grateful for those principles. But there's a downside to that, and that is that that he taught us to be very independent and self-sufficient. So then when I became a believer in God and started getting involved in things like church, it was hard for me to receive from others. It's hard for my dad to receive from others. Maybe you can relate. A few years ago, we had a breakthrough. About 15 years ago, as he and mom were aging, my mom has since died, but as they were aging, one of the things that they were challenged with, as many old people are, is technology. It wasn't that my dad's dumb. He's a very smart guy. He just didn't have a lot of interest in it. But as my brother moved to Michigan and as I moved here to Arizona, I said to dad, I said, we we need to help you stay in touch with us. And of course, I walked right into it. He said, why? And I said, don't go there. (laughs) And they invented something 14 years ago when I had moved here called an iPhone, right? And, And this smartphone. So I bought dad a smartphone. And I said, I know it looks complicated, but it's really easy to use. And, and you can use it, like get this dad away from the home, because all he had was a landline then. And, and I said, and, and, and you can communicate with Pete and I. And again, he said, why? But no, go with me on it, dad. And, and I said, he's even got this thing called texting. He says, what's texting? And I, and I said, well, instead of a phone call you can, or email, you can actually text a message in real time, just a short one, and, and be accessible immediately to your boys. And again, I kept walking into it. Why would I want to do that? 
And the iPhone didn't work for him. He, he never used it. So then I decided to buy him an iPad. I'm an Apple guy. So I bought him this bigger iPad. And I said, Dad, this thing's amazing. And I put it on his kitchen counter. I said, you can email with it. And because he did like email. He had an old PC that kept breaking. I said, this won't break. And, and you can email. And there's this thing called FaceTime. I said, you can actually see Pete and I. And again, I kept walking into it. because I said, why would I want to see Pete and you? And he kept that, that, that iPad, and, and he's used it for the last 10 years, and he uses it as a weather station. All he does, <laughs> he's got it on his kitchen counter. He just checks the weather. Every, it was the most expensive weather station I've ever bought somebody. And finally, we had a breakthrough. Just a few years ago, his PC finally died. And instead of buying him a new PC, I said, Dad, let me buy you an iMac. He said, what's an iMac? And I said, well, it's a computer, but it's a lot easier to use. You're going to like it. So I went to Best Buy. I bought him an iMac. And my dad doesn't smile very often. He smiles when he says something he thinks is funny, but that's about it. <laughs> and when I brought this iMac home and I unboxed it, and I said, this is going to replace your PC, I saw the faintest smile come across his lips. And he let me go downstairs and set it up in his home office. And we set it up and I showed him how to use it. And two days later when I left, my mom, who always communicated for my dad, you know, I heard growing up, you know your father loves you. Yeah, keep telling me that, mom. And, and, and my mom looked at me as I was leaving and she said, he likes it. And for the last four or five years, my dad has regularly communicated via email only once a day. He only checks email once a day. That's his discipline. But he communicates it on a iMac that I got the privilege to provide for him. See, everybody, no matter how self-sufficient you are, no matter how independent you are, needs a good provision for them every now and then. You could probably tell a similar story. And if you can latch on to this idea of provision at all, and I think most of us can, you're now ready to transfer this concept to God and more specifically to his son, Jesus Christ. Because what you and I are going to see today is that the risen Jesus in great part exists to provide for his own, for those who embrace him and follow him fully with their very lives. We're in a series of messages here at our church called When Jesus Appears. We're spending six weeks in the Gospel of John as we finish it out, looking at what is called the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. We're looking at that very narrow window of time where Jesus has risen from the dead before he ascended into heaven, which is about 40 days, the Bible tells us. But during that time, he appeared a lot. And one of the things that we're noting as we look at these various appearances is that each one contains a purpose. In week one, we saw that when Jesus appeared initially to the disciples, it was to announce that I'm here, I'm risen from the dead, and that my presence with you will always be with you. And then Kevin walked us through week two of this series, and he talked about how when Jesus appeared to Thomas, it was to give proof of who he is. So not just presence, but proof. And then Rustin last week talked to us about purpose and how he appears to us to give us a purpose through belief in our lives. And today, as we look at another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, it's going to have everything to do with this idea of provision. Now, the historical story that we're going to focus on today that's recorded in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, I'm going to warn you, is a very simple, easy to understand story. 
I'm gonna tell it to you in about three minutes and it's really easy to get. But if ever a simple story carried a profound set of truths, you're gonna see that today, this one does. So let me tell you the story and then we're gonna spend a few minutes drilling down on the core and relevant aspects of this story. The story begins with a portion of the original disciples, seven of the 11 disciples, having made their way up to the Sea of Galilee. In the first appearances of Jesus, they're in Jerusalem, and now they've taken a two-day walk up to the Sea of Galilee. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, but it's the same place. And they most likely had gone there because Jesus told them that he would be going north to Galilee, so they went there to try to find him. And at one point, as they were waiting for Jesus to show up, Peter says to them, very simply, let's go fishing. Now, we know from our understanding of the Bible why Peter would want to go fishing. Two reasons. One, he was hungry, and back then you had to provide for your own food. And then secondly, these guys were commercial fishermen, so they went fishing to provide for their livelihood and to earn some money. And they get out on the boat at night when they would fish, and they would fish all night until morning. And that particular night, they caught nothing. It happens, even for veteran fishermen. There was no fish to be found that night. And by dawn, picture it, they are cold, damp, tired, and hungry, as any of us would be if we were with seven people in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee, having caught nothing all night. And a guy yells from shore, it's Jesus, but they don't know that it's him. Hey guys, try casting your net on the right side of the boat. I'll bet you'll have better luck there. And the disciples, most likely assuming that this guy sees something from shore that they couldn't see themselves in the boat, decide to cast their nets on the right side and it's the catch of the century. In fact, the catch is so great that they have trouble holding all the fish in their net. It's literally 150 large fish, and the boat is small, holding seven people. And probably never having received such immediate and successful advice from the shore, John, who is one of Jesus' closest followers, does a double look, and he looks on shore, and all of a sudden he yells, it's the Lord, it's Jesus who gave us this advice. And Peter, who is always the impetuous one, jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. The rest of them row to shore. And when they get there, Jesus had started a charcoal fire and he had put some bread that he made himself on the fire and some fish that he caught himself on the fire. And he says to them, let's have breakfast. And they're all blown away, now in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, once again with a full provision of fish in their nets and a breakfast to boot, served up by the incarnate Son of God in their midst. It's such a simple story when you think about it. Let's go fishing, no fish caught. Jesus gives some good advice and then provides breakfast for them. And yet, as I warned you, if ever there is a profound nugget of truth in a simple story in the Bible, this one has it. And before I share that truth with you, let's cement that there really is a purpose to this beyond just recording history for us. And there is, because here's how John postures this story that I just told you. Look at the bookends of how he sets up and then comes out of this story. This is relevant. 
He says, after these things, meaning the first two post-resurrection appearances, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. And then, as he, and then he tells the whole story. And then as he closes out the story in verse 14, he says, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So just notice, thrice over, Jesus says, manifested, manifested, manifested. That word means to appear, to be seen, to make visible. So the risen Son of God made himself known. He appeared to the disciples. John wants to make that very clear. In this way, for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. In other words, there's a point to John telling us this story. Something we need to learn happens when Jesus appears, and it's this. And now you're ready for it. It's our main point today. And that is that when Jesus appears, he provides. Did you know that? When Jesus appears, he provides for his own. Folks, I believe this is why John told the story and why he wants us to know this. That when Jesus shows up, and by the way, he shows up regularly in our lives. He gave us a promise in Matthew 28 that for those of us who embrace him and follow him, he will never leave us or forsake us. So it goes without saying, he's constantly showing up in our lives. And when he does, he regularly provides for his own. In other words, there is a clear provision aspect to Jesus and his care for his followers, similar, but even more than what happened here on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. This story teaches us something about Jesus and his relationship with his followers, and it has everything to do with this idea of provision. Now, once we understand that, Here's what we need to do in about the, the 20 minutes we have left before we go to the communion table here at Shea. Some of you have already done that, but we have not done that yet. And so let's spend a few min minutes drilling down on this reality of provision, because it's one thing to say he provides for us. It's another thing to note exactly how he does this. And I want you to notice three distinct things about Jesus's provision, watch this, contained right in this story so we know it's rock solid and true. First, notice with me that the story makes it clear that Jesus provides for our needs. He provides for our needs. This is a very important aspect of this story. You don't wanna miss this because it's gonna be important for our lives today. And so look with me at how John makes this clear. It's seen as he describes precisely what Jesus provided for that day with the disciples. And again, it's a lot of detail in what Jesus provided, but we're going to wade through the details and, and distill it to its most rudimentary or, or common things. First, let's read the detail. This is the description of, of what Jesus provided. It says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And as we know, he caught nothing. It said, and then says, and he, Jesus, said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And then they get to shore. It says, so when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and a fish placed on it and bread. And Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
So a lot of details in this, this rich story here. And notice as he tells all this details, what it's really saying. I mean, it says they went fishing, they caught nothing. There's a great number of fish and there's a charcoal fire and there was bread and fish on it. At the end of the day, let's just wade through our details and ask the question, what was it that Jesus really provided for them that day? It's not a trick question. It's just really simple. Fish and food. <laughs> That's what he provided for them. Fish and food. And you're saying, why is that important? Well, it's because it's what they needed. They were hungry after a night out on the sea. They needed money because this was their livelihood. This was their job. And Jesus met their needs. He, he met the need that they had for their daily bread. That's in the Lord's Prayer. And he met the need that they had to provide for their lives, their job. In other words, he gave them a great catch. He gave them a daily meal. And that's the point. That when Jesus becomes your Savior and Lord, when you trust and follow him, he will regularly appear. He will manifest himself to you, and he will meet your needs, just like he did with the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of you have already sensed where I'm about to go with this. As I've said it a thousand times, I've said he meets your, say the word with me, needs. And by default, that means he will not meet all of your wants. Ooh, you guys are so smart. I'm so glad you have that distinction in your head. That's really important today because sometimes you watch the TV preachers. I'm not going to mention which ones, but sometimes you watch the TV preachers and they make it sound, am I being fair, that if you just trust him enough, he's going to give you all of your wants you need to know, this is Scottsdale Bible Church. We teach the Bible very clearly and regularly, and I can't find any passage that I've looked at closely that promises to you that if you claim a want, he will give it to you. He might give it to you. He wants you to have your wants. He loves you, and you can pray for your wants, but listen to me, the wants are not promised. What is promised is that he will meet your needs. He takes care of his own. He's got you wrapped in his arms. And whatever your needs are, and we'll talk about these in just a second here, he is committed to meeting them. That's the point of this story. And so it is important to distinguish between a need and a want, and you need to be brutally honest with yourself. When you're asking God for something or even saying, God, I know you want to do this in my life or you will do this in my life, is it really a need or really a want? Because here's the freeing thing. Once you're brutally honest with yourself and you discern what your needs are, you can claim in that moment that he's there to meet them for you. He loves you that much. His provision is very real. Some of you might be tempted to think right now, well, Jamie, you're just reading this into the story. I mean, you've done a good job of needs and wants and fish and food and all that, but is this really what the Bible says? Yes, it is. Look at how Paul the Apostle would clarify this later on, years after this event here, when he says in Philippians 4:19, and my God will supply all your, say the word with me, needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So it's through Jesus and the riches that God has for us in Jesus, that he will supply all the needs that you and I have. And by the way, this is why I said earlier, this goes well beyond livelihood and food. He's committed to every aspect of your life, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and physically. He knows what you need. 
And as you follow him, as you trust him, as you yield to him, he will supply your needs. But it does take believing and trusting that he will do so. Nowhere in the Bible does it say he's gonna supply for you if you turn your back on him, try to do your own thing and go your own way. He supplies and takes care of those who lean upon him. Just going back to that story with my dad. If my dad had said to me that day, I don't want an iMac, get out. Go back to your hotel, which was in the basement. Go back there right now and, and, and let me stay put with my PC. I would have said, fine. If you don't want the provision, you don't have to have the provision. So for some of us here today, what it's gonna take for us is to drop our guard, drop our defenses, yield to Jesus in our lives and say, I trust you, you'll meet our need. And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, but what if he doesn't? What if I trust him to meet my needs and I know it's a need, not a want, and he doesn't come through? Let's wrestle with that for a minute. <laughs> I, I get there in my life. There are times where I'm terrified to trust Jesus for my needs. I, I'll own that with you. I think everybody goes through that. When I consider my kids, especially my girls, when I consider my job and my church, when I consider my future as Kim and I are getting older, it's very easy for me, when I, for me to want to grab all that and try to control it. And God regularly tells me to get my hands off that and to, to trust him, he's got me. But there's a part of me that says, but what if you don't? Or, or, or what if you think something's my need, but, but I, or you think, what if I think something I need and, and you don't really think I need it, but I really want it and, and I start to play these games and before you know it, I'm not really trusting him. There have been three things that, that have helped me with this. The, the first is, again, as I mentioned earlier, is to distinguish between needs and wants. It's really hard in today's world because you and I live in a culture today in which most of the things that we really want are wants. Can you own that? I mean, our needs are met by living in an American culture, but there are times where those are threatened, and God has said he will provide for his own. I can remember we went through the, the recession back in, in 08, and I was your pastor then, I was relatively new, and there were some people who had had their needs met for a very, very long time, and now those needs were threatened because their job was threatened or no more, and they were losing their house, and they wondered how they could even make ends meet at all. And I can't tell you how many people I prayed with and prayed for, and I said to them, he will meet your needs. In fact, I coined a phrase back then and said, God is a God of provision, and people looked at me like I was crazy. Like, how could you know that? Because <laughs> I read the Bible for crying out loud. <laughs> and my Bible tells me he will provide for his own. And I could tell you so many stories of how God provided our needs. Sometimes, however, we do have to wait. This is one of the things that also keeps some of us maybe in doubt mode is that we say, well, you know, he wants to meet my needs and he hasn't met them yet. And I sit there and go, well, maybe the disciples felt that. One of the things I love about this story is that they waited all night catching nothing. Did you catch that? So they were in that boat, seven of them in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee. They're veteran fishermen, and they catch nothing. Hour after hour after hour, and it's dark. And again, they hadn't been thinking, where's God? I mean, God's in control of my life, and we get in our lives for Jesus. He's not anywhere to be found, and we're catching nothing. No, Jesus had this all under control. He was waiting until morning. Just like the psalmist said, though there's weeping in the night, there's joy in the morning. And Jesus knew he was gonna meet them in the morning and provide their needs. I wonder if that's not symbolic for some of us. 
We're in a dark time right now. We wonder where God is. Is he even going to meet our needs? He says, hang in there, Christian. I got you. I know what your needs are. Just wait. Morning is coming. So sometimes we just need to wait. And at the end of the day, more than anything, at least this is where God has me in a headlock, we need to trust. I'm telling you, this is one of those truths where if you don't believe it, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy for you. <laughs> if you don't believe that he will provide for you, basically what you're saying to God is, I got this. I don't think you can handle this one, Jesus. I'm gonna take it on my own. You do that, you're stuck with your old PC. You don't get a new iMac because you have to receive the gift that he has for you. The first thing we learn is that Jesus's provision is the, I'm sorry, about Jesus' provision is that his promise is all about our needs and he is good for it. Now, we're fast running out of time, so let me share with you a bit more quickly a couple more things from this story that I believe will greatly encourage you on how and in what ways Jesus provides through meeting our needs. This will add some real grit to it. So notice the second thing, and that is that Jesus provides for us independent of our own resources. You're saying, what do you mean by that? Look at how this story communicates this to us. It says in verses 9 and 10, so when they, the disciples, got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire, here it is, already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now, let's wrestle with this for a minute. One of the things that the Bible experts point out, as I found in my study this week, is that this story stands in rather sharp contrast to another fish story that John told 15 chapters earlier. Some of you remember the story. It was a story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus took the small number of fish and loaves that they had, the disciples had, and he miraculously multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. It's an amazing story. And in that scenario, Jesus took what they had and yielded to him, and he multiplied it to feed a lot of people. This one's different. In this story, Jesus is essentially saying, I don't care what you have. I don't care what you bring to the table. I've already made breakfast. I've already caught the fish. I've already got the bread. It's already cooked for you. And then he says, and if you want to add a couple of your fish to it, by all means, but I don't need them. And the reason that this is important, and I think significant, is that this flies in the face of a mentality that, that a lot of Christians have, and I know you've heard it too, where they say or assume, I got to do my part, and when I do, God will do his part. In other words, I got to bring something to the table and God will bring something to the table. And what a wonderful partnership me and God have. I've actually heard people say it like that. Like God's my co-pilot and things like that. And I just want to vomit when I hear things like that. <laughs> because you don't understand grace when you think like that. Again, I'm a realist. Are there times where God does say, bring your fish and loaves and I'll multiply it? Sure. But there are other times, and this is where the real grace is found, where he knows that your loaves and fish are paltry, that they're not gonna do what you think they're gonna do. And he says, lean fully into me. I got the riches, I got the resources, I know what you need, and I'm gonna provide for you. Franklin Graham, in his wonderful book, Rebel with a Cause, 
says it this way. He says that when you get to the end of your resources and yet the goal that you have to get to is well beyond what you can do, he calls that God room. It's room in your life for God and only if God shows up and fills it is something gonna happen. I love that. Tim and I talk about that regularly. Are we leaving plenty of God room in our lives? When it comes to our kids and our church and our marriage, are there things that if God doesn't show up, that they won't happen? Larry Crabb, my mentor friend who died recently, called this the difference between naturally accessible reality and supernaturally accessible reality. You like that? Natural accessible reality, is that what you can do on your own? Supernatural accessible reality is only that which God can do in and for you. And the reality is, is that part of his meeting of your needs is he says, drop your guard, let go of your pride, allow me to be your all in all, and I will show up and I will meet your needs. And then that leads us to a third and finally, probably most powerful thing that this story teaches us, it kind of brings it all together. And it's this, that Jesus then provides in a way or in ways that surprise us. What do I mean by that? He surprises in ways, or provides in ways that surprise us. But one last time, let's look at the story, and you're gonna love this. We're gonna have some fun with this that, 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 that's kind of interesting in the details here. It, it says, so they cast the net, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And then, they, then John says later, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, and it was full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I had fun with this this week. There's three things here that show the extent of Jesus's provision, the extent of what he did in their lives and providing for them. First, and you caught this, was the number of fish. It says that there was a great number of fish, more so than they would have ever expected to have on their own. And then John, for some reason, and I know why, even lists the actual number, which is very rare in the scriptures. Again, Christians are really goofy. I found in my study this week that, that there have been Christians over the years that have tried to pull like a Da Vinci code with this number thing here. They really have. Like there's been tons of attempts to, well, this number means this, and if you divide this into it, it means this. And what the Bible's really saying is this. You should all be careful when anybody ever talks like that. Like what the Bible is really saying is this. What the Bible is really saying is what the Bible is really saying, amen? And the reason that it's 153 is for one reason only. He's trying to show the extent of the provision. John is saying, man, they expected to catch maybe 14 fish, one, two for each of them. And it was 153 and it caught them off guard. It surprised them. He met their need and some. That's what John's trying to communicate with the number 153. And then the second thing that shows us the extent is when he said they were large fish. <laughs> I had fun in my research this week on that one. I wondered, well, what kind of fish are there in the Sea of Galilee? Well, he's not talking about minnows here. I can tell you that right now. That by large fish, the most popular fish in the Sea of Galilee is tilapia. Anybody like tilapia? Uh, oh, come on, I like tilapia. <laughs> And it's one of the largest fish. It's not a very big fish, but it's a lot bigger than a minnow. And it's so common in the Sea of Galilee, they actually call it St. Peter's fish because Peter caught a lot of tilapia. And so what he's saying here is that he caught a lot of large tilapia there in the Sea of Galilee. And then a third 
description of this provision is that the net was not torn. Why is that important? Because John is assuming that with 153 large tilapia in that net, it would have completely tore the net. And it would kind of doused a little bit the provision because, you know, hey, they got all these fish, but now they got to use part of the, the fish money to, to build or make or buy a new net. And he's saying, no, 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 this provision was so amazing that not even the net was torn. So, so add it all up. This is kind of important. In meeting their needs with his provision, Jesus goes above and beyond. A great number of fish, large fish, net not even torn. And he provides in such a way that John is blown away. That's why he tells all these details to us. And he's so blown away that you have to believe that they would have looked back on this and said, only God, only God. I, uh, I know I've told this story before, but it was probably one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me in this area of provision. It was years ago. It's one of the first times that I can remember being blown away by God. It was when my kids were really young. In fact, Paul had just been born. They were little babies. We were living in Detroit. And uh, Kim and I were just living hand to mouth. I mean, real hand to mouth. Three kids, all under four years old. And we're living in a little, little house in, in Harper Woods, Michigan. And it was paycheck to paycheck. And, and the car that we had, we only had one primary car, was a 1983 Malibu station wagon. And it was a POJ. I mean, a piece of junk. I mean, the thing was on its last legs. <laughs> It had way too high miles. I couldn't take it to Cleveland to visit the family because I just didn't trust it. And we really needed another car. And I had no money for a new car. And so I had been saving, 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 saving. And we had exactly $5,000, which was a lot of money back then, to buy a good car. This was the year 1994. And 10 years earlier, in 1984, Leah Icoca had vented a car that I was unable to purchase. It was called a minivan. Y'all ever heard of those? A minivan. Minivans had been out for about 10 years, and again, I couldn't afford one. And uh, I thought, maybe for $5,000, I can find a minivan. And I remember looking in the papers. A paper is this, this big white thing that they had back then that you would, you know, look in. I looked in the, the classify ads, and I, and I found a guy in a suburb of Detroit there that, that had a, a, a Ford Aerostar. Some of you might remember that. Again, another POJ, but just go with me on it. And, uh, and, and this one was in good shape. And it was a Ford Aerostar, relatively late model, and he, and, and, and he wanted $6,000 for it. And so I, I, on a whim, I called him, and, and he said, yeah, come on out. And I, and I went out and looked at it, and, and I said, you know, I, I, I have $5,000 by this car cash. That's all I can afford. I have no more money at all. He said, well, I, I can't take $5,000, but if you want to, I'll take $5,500 for it. And I just said, I, I don't have it. I went home that night, and, uh, and I realized I did have it. I, I realized that, that I had been behind on my tithing. I'd been behind on my giving. It was December of, of 94. And, uh, and I had actually had $500 put aside that I owed to God, that I needed to give to the church. Now, this work is rich. I added 500 plus 5,000, and I did the math, carry the one, and it was $5,500, exactly how much I needed to buy this car that we needed. And I thought, God will understand. I mean, you know, let's not be legalists about it. I mean, he, he knows, and this is my need, and maybe this is way he provided for my need. And as I prayed about it for two seconds, I thought, don't you dare. This is God's. You need to give that money and trust him to provide for you. You know, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. I wasn't cheerful that day when I gave that money. <laughs> but I gave it, and I trusted God. That was on a Sunday. That night, there was a knock on my door. You can see where this is going. 
Lynn was at the door. Lynn was an older lady in the church. Her and Fred were wonderful people. And, and she was kind of sheepish. She handed me a card and just said, Merry Christmas. And, and when she left, I opened up the card and it was a nice Christmas card. And in it was a check for $500. I immediately said to Kim, I said, did you say something to Lynn? <laughs> did you tell anybody? She said, no, I, I didn't tell anybody. I was like, oh my word. Exactly the provision I needed, God provided for me. It gets even richer. Remember how I told you he does above and beyond what we ask? I, I called the guy the next day and I said, hey, this is Jamie, the guy that looked at your arrow store. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you called. He, he said, you know, last night my wife and I were thinking about it. He wasn't a Christian. He said, we're just thinking about it. And we thought, you know what? You need this, this van. And so we're willing to sell it to you for $5,000. <laughs> Do you think I told him I had 500 extra bucks? I did not. I was absolutely blown away. We actually took that money. No, we didn't give it to the church. We took that money and we did something that has paid dividends ever since then. We, we bought something with it for the family. We bought what was called a camcorder. I'm dating myself significantly here. A camcorder was an old little VHS or little micro, I don't know what it was, micro tape in it. And we started taking films of the babies and films of the kids and films of vacation. And as I look back on that, I'm just amazed at how God provided. And guys, I could tell you story after story after story of his provision. And again, I'm human. There's times I doubt it. There's times where I have a need and I wonder how in the world is God gonna meet that? Will he meet that? But he does. He's always good for it. So here's what I want you to do. I never give you any homework, but today I'm going to. I want you to dig deep today as you leave. We're gonna do communion here, but the rest of you are gonna be on your own. And, and I want you to dig deep, and I want you to think of a time where God met your need, where Jesus provided for you. And as you think of that time, your only homework this week is I want you to tell somebody about it. I want you to bore the snot out of somebody with a story from your life on how he became your provision in a time of need. Seriously, Rich, I want you to tell somebody your story. Ed, I want you to tell somebody, your brother, at your story. Tracy, you're good for this. I want you to tell somebody that story. I want all of you to tell the story. And then after you tell your story, I want you to ask them if they have one. And then Art, I want you to listen. I want you to ask them if they have a story of when Jesus has ever provided for them. And I'll bet you they do. And then the next time you're down, the next time you doubt, because it will come, I want you to remember three things. I want you to remember this story out of John. I want you to remember your story that you told. And I want you to remember their story that they told you. So you got three stories to keep you going. Stories are powerful. They speak a lot more than just didactic truths. Stories people remember. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing story in the scriptures here that bring home the reality of your provision, of Jesus's provision in our lives. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are some, if not many of us here today that need a provision. We need something from you. And Lord, we're in that, that, that nighttime boat and we're wondering, is morning gonna come? And Lord, remind us it will. And Lord, help us to hang in there and to trust you and discern between wants and needs. But Lord, as we do that, May we firmly have our grip upon you, the one who is our provision. Lord, as we head here in shade to the communion table and for Northridge and others have already done it, we know that your greatest provision is that you provided Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. You provided his atonement so that we might even have a discussion 
and how he, is our, how he is our provision. So God, as we celebrate that at the table now, be with us in a special way. May we lean into you in full faith and trust. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray and we all say together, amen.